Dispatches from Afghanistan. Victims of US drone strike still have not received an apology. Taliban government luring tourists with glossy campaign and girls left behind battling depression and hopelessness. Monday marks three months since Kabul crumbled into the hands of the Taliban. It feels like a lifetime ago, but yesterday at the same time. The evening earlier, and especially sultry late summer's night, my photographer Jake Simkin and I were working in the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif when it fell at a dizzying speed. We had just been out with some of the best trained Afghan special forces, who assured us with great patriotism that the typically Taliban-resistant city would never fall. How wrong we were. One moment, the place was abuzz with markets and vibrancy, But as that fate-filled Saturday droned on, we saw those from peripheral villages fleeing into the eerily empty city. The earliest flight I could get back to Kabul was still more than two days away, and with a sickening feeling, I kept trying to tell myself that Mazar would hold. At dusk, Jake and I ventured to our usual kebab cafe, which was strangely silent. The spidey sense kicked in, and we abandoned our hookah and stabs of meat and hurried back toward our hotel. Just as we approached the heavy armoured door, motorcycles started rolling in, and celebratory gunshots filled the air. That was the Taliban takeover. At that point, we really had no idea how the former insurgency, who had waged a bitter and bloody war against the US and its allies, would respond to foreigners, foreign journalists, and a woman. We stayed bunkered down and hoped for the best. I will forever be grateful to the young hotel staff who stayed by our side, who brought me tea and water and everything I could imagine and all the food they had left in the kitchen. They assured me that over and over that I was safe, even though I could sense that fear glistening through their own eyes. Fortunately, those initial woes we had of the Taliban targeting outsiders have been proven wrong. The Taliban is not ISIS. A foreigner is generally regarded as a guest in the country, in keeping with their Pashtun Wali tribal customs. The Talibs are becoming increasingly difficult to work with, given their desperation to restrict and control. But I interact with them daily and do not fear in any way for my life at their hands. More about that later. Relatives of Afghans killed in U.S. drone strike still haven't heard from Washington. Relatives of the 10 innocent Afghans killed in a U.S. drone strike before the Biden administration's frenetic August departure from Afghanistan say they haven't had any contact from Washington, let alone condolences or compensation, more than two months after the tragic blast. No one has directly contacted us. We have only heard apologies through the media. Aimel Ahmadi, 32, who is the brother of the mistaken target Zamare and lost his three-year-old daughter Malika in the U.S. drone strike, says Warily from the abandoned Kabul home. Last week, the Pentagon declared it had concluded its probe into the August 29 Kabul drone strike. A release pegged the blast as an honest mistake and said military, no military or international laws were violated, nor was criminal negligence involved. Instead, Lieutenant General Sammy said the Inspector General of the Air Force blamed confirmation bias, communication breakdowns, and execution errors. 
I heard that the USA does its work honestly, but this is not honesty, ML says of the report. We were all civilians. My brother did not have contact with any military, yet they targeted this area. The report remains classified, raising concerns over the Defense Department's lack of transparency and how the intelligence for the hit purported to be an ISIS-K operative preparing to carry out an attack on US interests was sourced and disseminated. No one has contacted us at all, fellow brother Ajmal Ahmadi, 33, affirms. He winces as he speaks of the fractured family and says that they would regularly come to the charred home but would cry so much that their older brother removed the Toyota Corolla targeted in the attack a few weeks ago. The car parked beside it, scorched and grey, still languishes in the courtyard. Last time we came, someone lost consciousness, so we cannot come here. The mothers are not in good condition, Ashmal continues. The family is still in shock. We haven't recovered. And Aimel is left with only one surviving seven-year-old daughter, who is still in deep shock and confusion. The family was living in the humble home, located in Kabul's Kawaja Burga district, two miles from the airport, waiting with high hopes to be called for an evacuation flight. Aimel had filed his special immigrant, immigrant visa, SIV, application, having worked in data entry and identification card printing for U.S. contracting company DynCorp between 2011 and 2014. Several other family members in the home also worked for various international organizations, throughout the protracted war. They were waiting with bated breath for the call to head to the airport when tragedy struck. Press reports have indicated that the United States government is making monetary compensation to the family and is expediting the survivors' visas to leave the war-shattered country for greener pastures in the US. But the family asserts that no such gesture has come their way. Rather, such reports have endangered the mourning relatives even further under the false guise that they are suddenly flush with cash and are planning a hasty escape. Moreover, Emil points out that he has not heard a single word about his SIV case. How Afghanistan's new government is luring foreign tourists to return. Not the young men. As the sun dips below the towering ancient rocks, spreading pinkish smears across the frozen sky, dozens of Taliban fighters pose for selfies. They're poised in front of what is left of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, which the Taliban blistered and blustered more than 20 years ago, much to the horror of the international community. The irony. Only now, the former insurgency, which stormed to presidential powers on August 15, vowed that they have no intention to erase history, but rather protect protect the deep and abundant past entrenched in Afghanistan. Whether such an order will stick long-term remains to be seen. Yet for now, the Taliban is on a colorful PR quest and says it is determined to build its tourism sector as a means to keep alive the fast-falling economy and spiraling humanitarian crisis. We are establishing our Facebook page and we will promote tourism and tell people how beautiful Afghanistan is, showcase the mountains, rivers, valleys, and everything. The newly appointed 38-year-old tourism director, Mohammed Zubair Musafa, quips from his Kabul office. We're going to promote our country, so come and take a first-hand look. But drawing in those outsiders will be a steep challenge for the regime, mainly responsible for the unrest that permeated the Asian nation and debilitated tourism efforts attempted by the previous US-backed government. However, Immediately after the late summer takeover, senior Taliban issues pledged to issue tourism visas, along with overtures that everyone was welcome 
previous government have done nothing over the years. They didn't care about the country. With the money, Afghanistan could have been like Doha or Dubai. But foreigners were not visiting places because of the fear of getting kidnapped or anything else happening. But we are ready to do a setup where people can visit e easily. Masafa bombasts. We will hire people who have studied outside the country, who have experience in the field. Nevertheless, much of that fear was the Taliban itself. Over the past few weeks, the Islamic Emirate, the official term for the Taliban government, brought in its own director, Mohammed Zubair Musafa, a former intelligence operative. Last month, his team set about reviving the previous government's Facebook page, Afghan Tour GD, in the hopes of alluring travellers to capture the country's natural beauty for themselves. Musafa also alleges that their marketing will primarily centre on word-of-mouth approach. Iranians, Turkish, German and Chinese, these are the people who are here. They travel as tourists. We ask them to bring more people connected to the, their country, he explains. Please come to Afghanistan. It is not the way the Americans have portrayed it. The Taliban will not eat you alive. And whatever mentality that has been provided, we want to change that. Women and girls left behind in Afghanistan, battling depression and hopelessness. Almost three months into Taliban rule in Afghanistan, and the many girls and women left behind in the aftermath of the US withdrawal are struggling with an array of mental health afflictions as the window of hope for escape narrows by the day. Most notably, those who once prospered in the sports sector feel banished to their basements and able to do the things they loved most in the world as the Emirate regime has prohibited women from playing sports and stopped most from going to school. The jobs they once held with dignity have all but dried up. Every girl's life has changed, especially for athletes. We cannot play again, Ariane Shamim, the 23-year-old women's tennis coach in Kabul, tells me with melancholy. Our hope is gone. It is very hard. We don't have a future. In addition to playing tennis at an international level, Ariane studied business administration and volunteered for numerous business-centric publications. Only now, she is stuck at home. There is nothing to do. The only thing is to start a life in another country. In Afghanistan, we cannot play tennis or study, and Afghan girls are not going to school. We are really scared to go outside, she continues. For now, the girls are passing the protracted days inside family homes by following life coaches on Instagram and messaging them for words of wisdom. My dream was to grow up and become a professional tennis player, to be something for myself. We don't want to marry by force. I grew up with a dream, stresses Somaya, 21, a computer science university student. Now there is no place even to practice. We cannot go to gyms or schools or work. I'm completely depressed. I don't know what will happen and what my future will be. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, only 3% of individuals visiting health centres are offered assistance for mental health woes, despite alarming rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD. Women are also analysed to harbour the silent wounds of war at far higher rates than their male counterparts. Yet, the fact that some women are speaking out marks a significant step forward. Stigma has long been a mammoth hurdle in Afghans reaching out for help regarding mental health issues. Nonetheless, amid the heavy fighting, Human Rights Watch estimated that around half the population were enduring psychological affliction. While the previous government 
trained more than 750 counselors to provide primary treatment and hundreds of mental health facilities were erected nationwide, less than 10% of the population used the services. And you can click in the links in the newsletter to read more on all those topics. And for those interested in learning about the aftermath of war, please pick up a copy of my latest book, Only Cry for the Living, Lessons from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. You can also listen to a podcast recorded this week with my Egypt-based friend, Tahir. Link, of course, again, is in the newsletter. Thanks again for your support. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holly S. McKay for more updates. And the photos are courtesy of my brilliant photographer at Jake Simkin Photos. Please consider a paid subscription so that we can continue this work.